And so from a high performance standpoint, I mean, I think when we look at some of the research around, and again, this is more on the endurance side, but international to national level competitors, we see that international level competitors get sick 40% less than national level competitors, right? Hmm. So if you can just show up every day in the gym or every day of practice and not miss days at the end of that year or that block of four years, I mean, you're going to be that much further ahead than the competition. That was Dr. Mark Bubbs, and you're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Health and its role in being a stronger human being is a really critical portion of being a better athlete. If you look at the spectrum or continuum of human first, athlete second, specialist third, which Andy Ryland talked about about 20 episodes ago, we realize that there are some foundational elements to to training athletes that we really need to dig into to fully cover our bases and give athletes their best experience. To the end of improving our health through a variety of means, I am thrilled to have Dr. Mark Bubbs on the show today. He is a naturopathic doctor, a performance nutritionist, and the author of the best-selling new book, Peak, which is a personalized approach to health, nutrition, training, recovery, and mindset. Mark currently serves as the performance nutrition lead for the Canadian men's national basketball team. He has a portfolio of elite and professional athletes in Canada, USA, the UK, and beyond. He's the host of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast, and he is an overall rock star in anything having to do with the underlying foundational principles of what make us healthy and high-performing human beings. So for the show today, we're going to get into the critical and foundational aspects of, of health, being sleep, nutrition, and mental de-stressing and mindset and everything that goes with that. We've certainly had other shows de uh, delving into these topics on some level, but this one puts it all together in a way that I think really helps us to see the big picture and then also digs into some really critical areas, specifically things such as the gut biome within the portion of nutrition. What does that mean to an athlete and what does it mean to our health and well-being? We're going to get into ideas on recovery modalities and how when you walk into a typical uh, therapy session, you're going to see some things that are actually detracting from the recovery experiences an athlete's getting and you'll have to stay tuned to hear exactly what that is, but it has a lot to do with technology and our screen time population. We're also going to get into sleep, and we're going to get into some things that happen once you start to dip below critical levels and how there's actually a pretty high and significant performance gap for a lot of athletes in that area. So covering these elements, how and why they're important, and digging into some critical factors is all what today's episode is all about. We're also going to get into... When is it that these elements start to show up in a manner that they are going to start affecting performance? And if we want to give our athletes the best that we can, we need to really understand these things and we need to know when a health-related issue might be at play in them not performing well, them not reaching their potential, not playing well, not winning games. And results are not just the training program. There are some other, there are other foundational elements here. And Dr. Mark Bubbs is the man to talk to when it comes to these elements of health and performance. So that being said, let's get onto the show, episode 195. Mark, thanks for being here today. Could you key us in quickly, maybe the two-minute version of your, your background in the industry, what you're doing right now, and uh, some of the... Uh, some of the things that got you there. Maybe that's like a five-minute question. I don't know, but but uh, just to start with. Yeah, I mean, thanks for having me on, man. I'm a performance nutrition lead with Canada Basketball and uh, work as a consultant as well. So with uh, you know elite sport and also with 
you know, recreational clients looking to improve their performance. And, you know, my background in nutrition and also in naturopathic medicine. So bringing a bit of a holistic view on, on athlete health and, and human health in terms of performance. And, and that's, uh, that's pretty much the philosophy. And again, anywhere from people trying to look better, feel better all the way up to, you know, a lot of our guys obviously playing in the NBA and people got into the Olympics and, I'm always amazed at how a lot of the similarities, like the problems people are having at the highest level can actually be quite similar to the problems the rest of us are having or trying to perform at work and at home. So um, there's a lot of similarities, but of course there's definitely some differences as well. Yeah, for sure. That, that answer kind of takes me to the first question I had for you, which is the idea of fitness versus health. And I think we hear this sometimes the sense of someone who looks fit in the gym might not necessarily be healthy or, or vice versa. Um, and so what's for the, for a high performance perspective, those of us who work with athletes, like what's the, maybe it's not a point, but is what's that point where poor health really starts to spill over into performance? I mean, does it start from square one? Does it have to hit a critical mass in anything? I mean, it's probably a complex question, but, um, what, uh, what would be a good, um, what would be a good indicator of that, that crossover between health and performance or health and fitness? Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating question, right? Because we just assume the two are, you know, are, are so intertwined. And this is where, you know, phys- fitness is obviously the ability to perform a physical task, um, health being a state of well-being. And we, they do travel together to a certain degree. But then when we really get to the tip of the spear, they start to veer off. And there was a great paper written maybe three or four years ago now by Prof. Paul Larson and uh, Phil Moffat's own athletes fit but not healthy. And, of course, the, the endurance crowd is is definitely one that, the insurance athletes are, are ones that tend to experience that more than, than even others, right? Cause they're pushing the volume, they're pushing the intensity. And so this notion around, you know, overtraining being just a person who's unhealthy. Right. And, and so from a high performance standpoint, I mean, I think when we look at some of the research around, and again, this is more on the endurance side, but international to national level competitors, we see that international level competitors get sick 40% less the national level competitors, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can just show up every day in the gym or every day of practice and not miss days at the end of that year or that block of four years, I mean, you're going to be that much further ahead than the competition. And so I think it's pretty cool now that we see this athlete health component, you know, this human first idea being more intertwined with different performance models. And, you know, on the female side of things, again, on the endurance with endurance sport, we just just be part and parcel that if you're an elite female endurance athlete, you know, you're going to lose men's season. That's just part of the, you know, part of the story. And of course, you know, chatting with experts like uh, Dr. Susan Kleiner, you know, new, new research coming out showing that women who maintain menstrual function, which again is sort of a, a proxy for health, right. are actually performing better at some of these elite levels. And so hmm. that whole notion that if we can keep athletes healthy, particularly in, you know, in team sports, like high skill sports, like basketball, or, you know, what we would call soccer, but most of the world calls football, you know, you have these athletes who are so skilled, you know, if you, if you can, if you got a 44 inch vertical leap and you're the fastest guy on the floor, you know, do we really need all these other things or is just keeping you healthy enough to show up every day, probably the biggest performance lever, you know? So those are some of the things that you, you hear being discussed more now. And I think it's, uh, it's been interesting in practice to be able to see what are some of the less direct things that we can improve someone's performance by just supporting these areas of health that then allow them to just be them and, and show up and do the amazing things that they can do. Yeah. I really, I really like that um, thought with the showing up and the consistency and the stats behind that. And I, 
before I had a couple thoughts. One was with just with distance runners in general. I, I always had heard the idea. I think Dan John, uh, coach Dan John had said something like this. Like if you go to a master's track meet, the sprinters look 10 years younger than they really are. And the distance runners look 10 years older than they really are. <laughs> yeah. And it was, uh, it yeah, was a tough one. I always, I was always like, okay, that does seem about right. I guess like it could like make sense. But then I was, uh, it was like Dr. Bruce Lipton stuff. And it was talking about DNA and telomeres and repetitive tasks. Like if the task is ultra repetitive, it, it does something like to aid your telomeres faster. And I was like, Oh, maybe this is it. Why? Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody necessarily. And they're probably, you know, becomes that point where distance running is good and then turns into too much and maybe trails versus roads or diversity. I don't know. It's just an interesting area to me. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting as well. And I think as a heuristic, it kind of works too, because you do tend to sort of see that. And I think there's a few little areas like obviously training outside. If you train in the sun and you live in California or Arizona, you're getting all that happening to the skin, which can impact. But I think the glucose aspect is a really interesting one because we know that if you're, you know, to perform on race day, as an elite endurance athlete, you do need a significant amount of carbohydrate and, you know, month after month, year after year, depending on what kind of strategy you're using. I mean, that's going to, um, you know, those advanced glycated end products are going to start to lead to, you know, more, more impacts on the skin. So if you're, if you're more uh, focused on how the skin is looking, then, you know, you may want to adopt certain strategies and, and maybe sacrifice a bit of performance, but I don't know, maybe that's a conversation for another podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be a, the, on the very specific on some sort of running yeah. podcast and looking good or not aging, yeah. looking aged or something like that. Um, I, the second thought I had from what you were saying was I, I love that idea of consistency. And I think it's something that we don't, we don't necessarily think of like it's not very like sexy to be like well just you know show up like and and do that as long as yeah. possible i think that when especially elite athletes and i've had talks other talks with coaches on this podcast about some there's some elite athletes who just have a really bad diet but the question always is then right how long till this catches up with you at what age is this going to catch up with you or is what t- what age is it going to co- start costing you uh, i guess right. that's where i my um my follow up to that is is how do athletes with uh, like a really poor diet and who are getting away with it in their early 20s, are these things showing up later? Is it different for everybody? Um, what's your take on all that? I mean, it's one that we see, you know, you see sports now with like, you know, Roger Federer, when he started to 34, 35, he started to lose some of those majors and it looked like, you know, this is it for him. And of course, all of a sudden at 36, 37, he starts winning majors again in Australian opens and then repeats and then Wimbledon. And you think, geez, the guy's now 37, 38, 39. He's, he's still the top four in the world. I mean, he wins the first, he gets to the quarterfinals of tournaments with still this, almost the same ease as he did when he was in his mid twenties. And that from a generation ago, I mean, you know, when I was growing up, if you got North of 30 and you were a tennis player, man, the, the, the drop off was, was pretty sharp. Hmm. Right. So I think a lot of the science around nutrition, uh, sleep, obviously things like recovery, obviously things like training, I think that's flattened the curve a little bit and allowed a lot of these athletes to be able to, to play a lot longer. I mean, you know, Canada basketball, Steve Nash, I mean, he played till he was 40 and he had a back condition, you know, I mean, that's just playing a point guard position in the NBA is, is, is phenomenal. And so I think that's where the buy-in can be difficult for young athletes. Cause you know, nowadays you're 19 or 20 into the league you know, when you're that age, you're indestructible, right? You're not thinking about mm-hmm. when you're 30. Everything just feels great. You can get away with everything. And so I think that's when having an environment where people are just making certain decisions um, really helps because environment is such a powerful influence on behaviors, right? And 
that was one of the things that really jumped out when I was, you know, researching and writing the book was, you know, percentage of household spending on ultra processed food. And this just blew me away because the UK is very similar to Canada and the US. And that 50%, so half of the household grocery bill is spent on ultra processed food. So stuff mm. that comes in boxes and bags, right? Well, if you're in London, you can hop on a train and less than two hours, you end up in Paris. And now you walk out of the train station and like magic, that number has plummeted to only 14% of household spending hmm. is on ultra processed food. And you think if if you just grow up in France, whether you realize it or not, your environment's forcing you and, and, and nudging you towards eating more real food, right? And the same goes, you look around the Mediterranean and we hear a lot about the Mediterranean diet. And of course, it's a little bit funny because it's like it's one diet, but I'm not a geography major, but I know there's about 14, 15 countries around the Mediterranean. So I'm not exactly sure how we got to one diet. Um, but the key thing around all those countries is this idea that they're all eating about 14% processed food. The rest of their food is just real food. And I think, you know, that idea then in the environment influencing them, of course, this is nothing new in sport, but I think you see this obviously now with professional sport, NFL, NBA of trying to create environments where, you know, the, the performance center has the kitchen and the breakfast is served and the more meals are being sort of controlled. And you even see this obviously at the collegiate level in the U S of, of, quality of meals between i mean from 20 years ago it's almost unrecognizable <laughs> even from 10 years ago it's phenomenal um so it's it's great to see that that's that's being kind of influenced and i think then the next stage for coaches and practitioners is to try to figure out you know when we don't have the athletes what are they doing when they're you know at home and on the weekends and whatever else right yeah that's an interesting point it makes me it gets me thinking a little bit about there's probably that, a pretty big difference between uh well, MBA or professional and, and like a university level on a lot of levels. But one is uh, MBA players, I think. Well, I was thinking about France and like or the Mediterranean. You grow up where people love to cook, right? And like a love of cooking it makes it easier and, and almost more like that's part of the culture of that non-processed food. Uh, I, uh, but if you're I feel like if you're an MBA player and maybe you're, you're doing other things or you, you're used to having things maybe made for you on some level. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I versus a university i know coaches who will have cooking classes for their athletes i mean is there any sort of like cooking class or i mean i don't know that seems kind of weird for an mba um do you know what i'm saying it's just interesting to be like oh, no. love of cooking i think it totally is and i think the funny thing even when you know for anyone who has kids out there and i know you probably really you know see this as well like just the the mirroring that kids have right so you know in france i mean just the kids the fact that they see their parents and people cooking the food from scratch all the time you know has this impact you know, deep in our subconscious. And so I think that's one where, um, you know, that's going to be part of it. And I think, Hey, I think cooking classes are great. Cause we kind of assume, you know, it's weird the things that we learn and all the things that we think are important in high school. And then when you come out the other end, you're like, no one can actually make breakfast or lunch. <laughs> it's like, like, I think we missed something along the way here. And if you do take a cooking class, at least when I was in high school, it was like how to bake a tiramisu or something totally ridiculous right like not not very practical yeah as is a lot of things we learn in university and school it, it's just yeah, yeah it's sure. just that way yeah, i i was i mean yeah i i was the epitome of the person i didn't even i shouldn't say i shouldn't say this i feel like i'm gonna get discredited but like i didn't learn to really cook till i got to grad school till i was 23 and it probably took me about three years to like four years to the point where i think i was actually making legitimately good for me meals and things like that for the most part and yeah it's uh it's something I guess I don't really think about because because everything else I was eating when I did learn to cook was processed and you know it just the better I got at it the more it was easy for me and 
Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's a weird environment now, right? Because if we think of this generation coming up with Deliveroo or Uber Eats or yeah. I'm not sponsored by any of these, so I don't, I'm not trying to name <laughs> Yeah, I'm not either. <laughs> but, you so. know, now, now things just come to you, right? And it's like, I don't know, are we, again, bypassing this kind of this kind of piece? And, and what is that? Uh, you know, I always think of the San Antonio Spurs as an example, right? Like a, people talk about their culture and their cohesion. And when you talk to folks who were part of that, you know, the, the dinner table was a huge part of that. Right. And so obviously they were eating out as you, as you mentioned, but they're, they're together, they're talking, they're mm-hmm. chatting. Like, I think that's a part of it of trying to figure out how we kind of keep that aspect where where athletes and players can kind of let their guard down a bit. They can, you know, be authentic with their teammates and even, you know, be vulnerable in spots and then be able to share things. Cause not to shift all the way over to mindset, but those are some key attributes to building trust, right? And so it's funny that you see those teams that really gel or have that cohesion um, tend to be doing a lot of those things together. And so, you know, people always talk culture and it's it's easy to kind of say, but I think it's, it's difficult to kind of naturally be able to ingrain those things. And I think, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I think a lot of it starts with food. Yeah, no, that's I, that's a really good point. It makes me think about uh, what was it like? Greg uh, Popovich was always like taking his team out to like all these. He had like all the restaurants and all the yeah. you know, the the big the wine lists and all these things, and um, it was really elaborate. But it, the the community element, I mean, I, I think that's not to be understated at all. I've been thinking a lot in just just in training, not even food, but in a training session, is there a, is there any sort of group cohesion or collaboration or sense of community within the training session itself, and that. The energy that that creates. Uh, I've I've had a podcast with uh, Rafe Kelly about twenty podcasts I think ago where I think we were talking about just that, like the emotional state before the workout, sense of community. I think yeah, yeah the more that that can exist throughout the the program or the the whole state of existence within the team, the better. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. Actually, I was reading an article the other day in over. Or- you know, I'm here in London at the moment and the, the premiership Wolverhampton's having a real big season. So they're way up the table, which is a bit unusual for them. And you know, Portuguese manager, Nuno Santos, I believe his name is. And he was talking about how, you know, if a player's late, they just don't start practice until they get there. So everyone just stands around and waits <laughs> until this late player shows up. And so it's pretty cool how it sort of flips this flips the narrative on the coach or the person in authority having to kind of wag the finger and be like, you're late or, or give a fine, right? They don't give any fines. Um, but the fact that all the other teammates are so pissed off that this guy was <laughs> late is enough to create that peer pressure to make sure that, you know, nobody's late anymore. And so I think those are always really cool strategies. If you can get the, you know, the students, the athletes, the players, you know, involved somehow in that self-policing or creating that environment where everyone just, the expectation is that you show up on time and everyone's ready to go. And um, so it's, it's, I think that's interesting because I think that's a pretty novel compared to how it is even in, uh, you know, NBA, NFL and some of those environments. Yeah, for sure. It's, yeah. And there's some point where uh, money can only go, fining can only go so far compared to the emotional, the emotional uh, impact of fining versus the emotional impact of, your teammates being pissed off at you. <laughs> and that's uh, exactly yeah. it, right? For these guys, money's nothing. But yeah, yeah, if your teammates are all pissed at you, then that, that price is pretty heavy. Yeah, for sure. Um, so moving on, and, and in your book, you mentioned it, in your book, Peak, uh, you had mentioned uh, Penfold's recovery pyramid. And so you know, we're talking about health and, and consistency, and but clearly there's things in recovery that just translate directly into training adaptation too and are, are very important. And so... Uh, what's what's prioritized? Like, what's the top of the ladder in in an athlete recovering from the work that they do, and how do you start to uh, triage or assess that? I mean, it's a great question, and it was something that was 
you know, in interviewing a lot of different experts and Lachlan Penfold was one of them, you know, former performance director for the Golden State Warriors. And of course now back in Melbourne, working with the, the Melbourne Storm and, you know, that idea of a pyramid of saying, okay, at the base of this pyramid, like if we're not sleeping, if the nutrition's not on point, you know, if this idea, we talked a bit about, you know, mental, emotional state, if those things are really off then it's going to be difficult to recover well, right? Um, you know, the next rung up for him was the training plan, as you, as you mentioned there. And, you know, as you keep going up the, up towards the top of the pyramid, you get more into modalities. And so, you know, Lachlan had a great quote where it was like, you know, if you fuck up the training plan, apologies, I'm not sure we can swear on this podcast, but if you, if you fuck up the training plan, you know, it doesn't matter how many ice baths you want to take. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not going to have any effect. Right. And so I think, you know, these, these bigger rocks can sometimes be overlooked, especially if, if practitioners or trainers or, or nutritionists are, are busy and, and have a lot of athletes or clients to make sure that, you know, those are the, really the priorities and they're being um, tended to sufficiently versus, you know, our athletes are always going to be gravitated towards, you know, should I do cryotherapy or should I do a, a warm bath or an ice bath? And, and it's interesting because, you know, other recovery experts, you know, talking to Shona Halson, it's like, well, what do they like to do? Like, what do you mean? What do they like to do? Like, why, why, why does what they like matter in this idea of recovery? Shouldn't there be a, you know, and you see, you see experts moving away from kind of having a, you know, after this session, we do ice after this session, we do this to just what, what does the athlete enjoy and what will the athlete do consistently? And so it's surprising this theme of consistency because it rings true in nutrition. And of course, as you know, it rings true in training, but when we look at recovery, you know, this idea that is the, is the guy or gal going to get in there and do it every single time? And, um, you know, and of course we're seeing things around using cold and ice that is perhaps not advantageous or potentially you know, negative in terms of training adaptation. So there's maybe more uh, cause for warm in certain situations, but again, all those things are kind of at the tip of the spear. And um, I think when, you know, we originally started this conversation on this longevity piece. And I think that's where if you look at those, you know, how the science of sleep, nutrition, mindset, training have come in the last decade or two come so far. I think that's got to be a huge piece of why athletes are uh, playing so well, you know, into their mid thirties, forties. Yeah. hundred percent. I, I thought it was interesting in looking at that pyramid. Well, first off the, I believe it was the recovery, the, the sleep, the nutrition, the mental, those are the bottom. And then the training was the next one on top of that. Right. It was. Yeah. Yeah, that was the same that very similar on some and some level that I was talking uh, a podcast I did with about 10, 10 shows back, 15 shows back with Logan Christopher. He had a pyramid performance and, and his first brick was the mental emotional before the before the training. Um, so I just think that that I find it interesting that that continually kind of supersedes the actual training nuts and bolts. Like if you're not emotionally excited, if there's not a sense of community what you do for the training is not as important as it making sure that that insulate is instilled first. And I just, I just find it interesting that that does show up. That was the second place I've actually seen that in a pyramid showing up. So I was like, Oh, it's a cool trend to see. Yeah. And it's funny because those other 22 hours of the day when the athlete's not with you, I mean, um, Liam Anderson, who works in the, again, the premiership and soccer did some work around calculating energy expenditure and football players. Right. And so most of them were, coming out, you know, this was the first study done really in, in premiership professional players. And they were all kind of coming out at 3,500, 3,600. And all of a sudden this one guy comes out at 4,400. And I was like, wow, that's, that's really high. Like, what is this guy? You know, they're looking at the training plan and everything else, you know, this, is, this isn't right. And of course the week they decided to do this, you know, he has family in town. And so he's walking all over town. He's putting all these extra steps on. 
And so his energy expenditure is going up. And so it sort of rings true of like, you can control what you can control, but like the other hours of the day when, when athletes and, you know, go home to their families and friends and everything else, I mean, that makes up such a big part of the time that I think that's where that mental emotional piece becomes so important because it is a bit of a proxy for recovery, right? Because the more run down, tired or, you know, incomplete recovery, then typically mood's going to follow that pretty, pretty tightly. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the GymWare and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the GymWare. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the gym work go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10 squatter versus a 5'11 point guard. So you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units. It's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as Coach Me Plus, Team Builder, and Athlete Monitoring. So new to the store is the Flex, which is the ultra-portable and lower-priced travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. So just like the gym wear, the Flex measures the shape of each rep, range of motion, total work done, eccentric dynamics, so for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, for sure. Uh, with sleep, uh, too, being on one of those things at the bottom in recovery, one of the things I I have heard you talking about before, and I, I, you, I believe you have it in your book as well as sleep debt. It's something that I think about more being 36 now and, and having two kids and things like that. <laughs> the kids I, definitely ramp up the sleep debt conversation. Right? Yeah, like, will, yeah. will I ever get out of this? Yeah, for sure. Because I, I mean, my, my first, uh, I mean, I'd heard the term sleep debt, but I think sometimes until it happens to you, you don't really, I don't know, you maybe don't think about it very much. So in, in terms of the actual like, sleep debt, how does that manifest itself, whether on a weekly level, like you have competition on the weekend, or is it more of a, can it be a chronic thing as well too? Or how, what are the ins and outs of that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, lack of sleep is a big issue. I mean, if we look at the average person's getting six and a half hours sleep, which is going to be less than the recommended national sleep foundation seven to nine hours right so we already know we're kind of getting a little bit less and then you look at about 30 percent of people get less than six hours and so all of a sudden we're we're chopping things off even more and you'd you'd think that athletes because they know about it more would get more but when you look at some of the research around olympic level athletes then when they compare to, to the same age and the same sex in the general population they actually have poorer sleep quality and more fragmented sleep and so you know, we're all sort of trying to chase this idea of, of trying to increase, you know, the total time that we get in bed and also the actual sleep quality, right? Because those things are going to be crucial for recovery. And, and, you know, as young, as parents, when you have young kids, it's, 
it's funny because in the medical literature, we always see all those testosterone levels come down and, you know, is there a low T issue going on? And it's like, so sometimes it's funny how reductionist we can get. You think, geez, no, nobody's sleeping, right? They got kids. They're sleeping like three hours a night. Of course, testosterone is falling because they're just, they're not recovering, right? They're struggling. And if you have a busy job, they might be drinking more than they have in a while, or maybe, maybe not in amounts, but like consistently through the week. And so all these things start to then stack on one another. Um, and so sleep debt is interesting because this idea of banking sleep is an, is a notion that, um, you know, the idea among sleep researchers is that you, you should get, you know, more sleep if you know you're going to enter a period where you're reduced in terms of sleep, because we know, you know, if you're an athlete, you know, reaction time, sprint time, if you're a skill sport, you know, three point shooting, um, bat speed, you know, all these things get impacted by lack of sleep. And so, I mean, even on top of that, actually talking to guys like Dr. Ian Dunican, who's a sleep expert in Australia, the night before a game, most people aren't going to sleep well. The night of a game, then, you know, the adrenaline of having the game, people also, you know, athletes then also tend not to sleep well. And if you play in a sport where, you know, ice hockey, football, rugby, where you're taking maybe loads of caffeine before a game, that also impairs sleep. Mm -hmm. And so you've got these two nights stacked together where you had poor sleeps. And so the rest of the week, you're actually trying to dig yourself out of that hole before the next games come. But of course you can think about sports like baseball or basketball where those games are coming, you know, more frequently. And so, you know, I think this idea of being in a bit of a debt means that most of us need to find spots in the week where we can try to get more sleep. The difficult part there becomes most people tend to have to wake up at about the same time. And so from a behavioral standpoint, it's like, how do we get people to go to bed that half hour early? Right. And this is where I think we're at the point in the sleep research, at least from my interpretation from talking to a lot of these experts is that we have all this information that tells us that more sleep is better. And we got to get to this certain amount, but it's actually getting athletes and people to do it. Right. Like how do you get them to turn off the phone, you know, get into bed, um, get off Instagram, get off Twitter. And so, you know, I don't think there's a magic formula with like this particular sleep routine or this particular thing. I think it's that idea of trying to really convince the person. And, you know, for example, in the general public, when I'm dealing with male clients, I mean, you know, if a guy who's getting less than six and a half just starts to get his sleep up to seven, seven and a half, he can increase testosterone by about 10% or 15% even. So that's normally one that gets people's attention, right? So mm -hmm. all of a sudden you've, you've dangled the carrot in the right direction. But I think, uh, you know, otherwise it's trying to find that strategy that will, you know, increase that sleep time for one night. But you can also think about even for the week, right? So how can we maybe add some naps in certain days if they're collegiate athletes or younger athletes or professional athletes, they have some time. I mean, people who are working, it's tough to pull up under the desk and, you know, take a kip in the middle of the afternoon. Mm -hmm. But for those folks, maybe the, you know, the weekends are obviously a time where you might be able to get 30 minutes or 60 minutes to start increasing that weekly total, because again, it's, it's not as sexy, but that's one where if you can start doing that, I mean, the ripple effects across the board from, you know, we talked about missing practices and training. I mean, immunity is a huge one, right? If you get less than seven hours of sleep, um, you know, risk of, of cold and flu goes up about threefold. And if you get less than six hours of sleep, your risk goes up about four and a half fold. And so whether you're a young athlete, whether you got kids at home, and that's the classic one, right? You got kids at home, so they're 
what we call super spreaders, right? They're gonna, you're gonna get your chances of, of coming across a pathogen are pretty high. And of course, because you don't sleep, you're immune compromised, so your defenses are low, and that's the perfect combination for getting sick. Yeah, going back to um, the penfolds as well, the difference, like you said, the difference between six and a half and eight hours or whatnot being 10% testosterone, it makes me think why the the, ther- the modalities are at the top of the pyramid because it's like it, it should almost be a thing on the modalities. If you didn't sleep eight hours, you should be taking a nap instead of, you know, putting on the Normatec or whatever you're, you know, whatever you're doing. Like it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just, it seems like people are always attracted to shiny things, but they aren't it's it's almost like if you had that stat on the modality that said if you did not sleep x this xyz <laughs> go take yeah, a nap back, and then come back, back. To square one yeah it's like everyone's putting the penthouse on but the, there's no foundation to the house right so um yeah and i think that's where people get a benefit right i mean you go in for a massage hey the massage was great but you know most people probably had a fell asleep for 30 or 45 mm-hmm. minutes you know and i think uh you know when we talk elite sport i think this is where there's probably a good it'd be fascinating to see a study around people who have treatment that just actually lie there maybe with their eyes closed or without their phones and nowadays of course everyone's lying there getting treatment on their phone yeah so there's yeah double <laughs> mental stimulation going on right so how do we rip the phone out of their hands so they can actually just chill out and maybe take a nap or decompress or whatever it is because we know they're going to be on their phone later they don't need this extra 45 minute bolus uh, you know immediately after exercise so i think that would be interesting because uh you know it's just everywhere now is it's ubiquitous and so i think that's probably dovetailing what we see with a lot of the you know lack of total sleep time and the poor sleep quality we see across the population yeah i've seen uh, a lot of places have like recovery rooms now where there's like a room devoted to it or whatnot it almost makes sense that it'd be a be a phone free zone too like you can't take your phone in here or there's like mindfulness music or something on that's not because yeah you're right every if i see athletes on modalities it would be a weird exception that they were not on their phone. Uh, not yeah, always, but, yeah, right. but very often, yeah, you're right. They are. And so, yeah, it's, I think people just don't understand how that's impacting you from a neurochemical standpoint. So uh, is that something that, I mean, are, are there people like, is that part of uh, what you're doing or people, you know, that are like really making an active effort to give athletes something else? Is there something else that people would have them do or like you know, go draw go draw a picture or something like something that's relaxing right i don't know it's I, just, a, I guess it's just funny being around uh you know my old colleague and boss is, used to be the head trainer for the toronto maple leafs and you know just the conversations and the things that would happen on a treatment table you know used to be such a huge part of, of yeah and it still is but i mean it used to really be kind of the the connector of a lot of things in terms of you know, cause even with us at Canada basketball, I mean, the athletic therapists and the guys who have their hands on the athletes, if you can hang out at that table and just be able to, to listen in and, and slide some things in where it's in an environment that's not so sort of threatening or, or whatnot, it's, it's, it's gold. But I mean, I think now it's tough cause there's this level, there's this layer between, right. This, this you're trying to connect with somebody, but there's, they're on their phone. And so how much attention are they, are they getting? They're also getting stimulation. I mean, I think it's a, it'll be an interesting one to see anyway in the next sort of decade, how that sort of plays out. And I think there'll probably be some, um, some research and things coming out around that. I'm sure. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. And that makes really good sense too, with like the, again, another chance for a sense of community with like the hands-on one, one-on-one conversation and versus a lot of the modalities being, just put this on and wear this and, you know, sit on your phone yeah. type modalities. Yeah. Yeah. There's I mean, a lot those more those you can out. see why people sort of defer to that. Right. It's like, yeah, I'm just sitting here by myself. So, but, 
I feel like the I like the was like the drawing for adults where you just like color or something. Coloring's pretty therapeutic. <laughs> I hand those out. Yeah. Uh, oh man. I mean it is hilarious when you see and you see things that activate, you know, the vagus nerve and whatnot, like things like humming and singing. And you know, if you've got little kids at home, you go to some of these drop-ins and all the parents are singing and everyone all of a sudden, you know, a minute ago everyone was in a bad mood at the, you know, grabbing a coffee or a tea and now everyone's having, you know, having a little sing song and everyone's walking out with a smile on their face. I mean, it seems so basic and simple, but you're like, wait a minute, you know, there's, there's something going on here. So, Hey, yeah, I don't know how that adapts to high performance sport, but, uh, got to figure out a way to, uh, to blend it in. No, that's a, I think that's a big thing. I, I feel like it's a little rabbit trail, but maybe not, but I, I, like you said, like, um, like I literally just started thinking about this about two years ago. Uh, it was my old, I was keeping tabs on an old um, college I used to work at, uh, Wilmington. It was called Wilmington College, and their football team was very, very, very poor. And they had a guy who was kind of like a program rebuilder come in. And um, he, one of the things I noticed they were doing is, they were the team was like singing like together after like after the game or something you know like having it and i was like there's something to that like i don't i think you know things like the hawker super trendy and that's i think it's like that but that's all different too and i but just that i i also there was another um there was a time i i run uh, circuit training uh in for one of my teams and where they'll you know they'll be on a particular interval and and there was a day where I just really didn't want them to have music on because I wanted them just to focus on what they were doing and moving between the stations well. And there were some partner stations where they had to do some things together. And I wanted them to focus on that. And But they were they wanted their music so much, some of the guys just started singing at the station on their own. <laughs> nice. Went, and I was like, this is great. This is even better for you know maybe exactly um, the reasons you said and probably some others. I just thought, I just think there's something to that. And I think it probably is more common or more accepted, I think, years ago, perhaps, I'm not sure, than it is now. But I just think there's something to that, st- that stuff. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, so moving on to, oh, so, so on to another portion. Uh, I, I love talking nutrition, but one thing I um, saw in your book that, that resonated with me and that I've heard other places and I think is a really big deal and that I haven't actually talked that much on this podcast series yet is gut microbiomes. Uh, so, and obviously this could be a whole show in and of itself, but uh, first, just like a summary of the importance of the gut biome uh, to the athlete on both the physical and mental levels. Yeah, it's a fascinating area at the moment in terms of research because it's really exploding. And, you know, obviously the gut microbiota, we have all this you know, massive collection of bacteria and yeasts and things in the, in the gut that are making up trillions and trillions of cells and has a huge impact on communicating with, you know, the brain and central nervous system. Um, and we're starting to see some associations that happen with uh, healthy individuals in, in life. So, you know, the greater the diversity of these different uh, bacteria in the gut will tend to correlate well with overall health and longevity, right? So we have a healthier person if we have more diversity. We see in athletes, you know, and a lot of research initially done, Orla Sullivan in, in Ireland or in, with rugby players, you know, that level of fitness we were seeing, the really good gut diversity with athletes, right? So the aerobic fitness component, they had you know, hypothesized that the protein intake as well was playing a role there. Um, but then as you get into different sports, you start to see different collections of bacteria and what we call you know, a gut biome signature. So in, in, in medicine, they're looking for these kind of signatures in health that would might tell you if someone has a certain you know, signature of, micro, um, of, of microbiota in their guts, right? a certain collection of species, 
that that will then predict whether they have type 2 diabetes or Alzheimer's or certain conditions, right? And so there's a lot of uh, advancements going on in that. And, then, and in sport, we actually see, I, I interviewed a lady, um, Dr. Lauren Peterson, who works at the, or used to work at the Jackson Laboratory, and, and she works with downhill racers, so downhill uh, mountain bikers. And they actually had, depending on how they, the different distances and whatnot, that they raced, then the you know the strains of bacteria in the gut tend to 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 coalesce into a certain area. Hmm. And in her research, she actually found that she could predict who would finish in the top twenty five percent just based on the bacteria in their gut. Now this all sounds great, but you you know you sort of think, well, why don't we just inoculate those bacteria, take a probiotic, eat some foods that are high in those things, and all of a sudden, top of the podium, you know, we're going to knock this out of the park and. Unfortunately, it's this idea of uh, you know cause or effect, and so we we tend to see people who are fitter and healthier. As a result of that, we tend to see this better balance of gut um, bacteria. Similarly, with diet, you know, the more diverse your diet, um, and a great example of this, a guy named Tim Spector, who's a doctor in the UK, um, done a lot of work around the gut microbiota. They're doing a massive study now called the Zoe uh, to investigate a lot of these things. One of the really cool anecdotes, a little um, case study that he did with another researcher was to to take a sample of his gut microbiota and then travel to East Africa and live with the Hadza for three days and see, you know, the Hadza have, quote unquote, sort of the greatest diversity or the best gut flora of any population uh, on the planet. And so this idea of, well, can we can we rewild our gut? Can we go back to nature and get all these benefits of diversity? And of course, you're taking a guy who was already eating well, who was already healthy and fit. So he had a pretty decent diversity. He goes over there for three days and they measure him uh, whilst he's there and they see diversity increasing, you know, exposure to the dirt and the environment that he was in, the, the different foods that he was eating. But the big thing is eventually, you know, he comes back home, right? He goes back to London and a few days go by and they say, okay, we're going to test you again. And so all that diversity that grew while he was away, when he goes back to his home environment, goes right back to where it was previously. And so, you know, once again, the environment's playing a huge role. So if you, we know that if you have a processed food diet, right, the diversity in your gut's going to be low. Now, if you're an athlete, you can still perform. I mean, there's nothing that's going to suggest that you can't be, you know, we hear stories about Usain Bolt eating, you know, depending on what story you hear, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 chicken nuggets before he set the record. Um, but if we get back this idea of being healthy and being, you know, not getting sick, not getting run down, then all of a sudden that might be a risk factor. So if you've got an athlete who's always tired, always run down, sick frequently, missing sessions, then your goal isn't inherently to increase gut diversity. But let's say if there was some testing that was done or done regularly, and you that might be marker that you see and it's actually a proxy for this idea of, of athlete health or human health right um and so there's various ways of, of improving that i mean most of the time we're trying to get you know a certain amount of protein in the diet obviously a certain amount of energy and carbohydrate and we're looking for variety in those things and just by doing that right just by getting variety in the diet you start to support that gut bacteria and of course classically things like fiber right the higher the fiber diet we're going to see some some better uh, robustness in gut bacteria, but uh, you know it's a, it's an inter- a really interesting field. I mean, there's there's trends. Guys named uh, an expert researcher Nick West out in Australia, Dr. David Pine did some work on comparing recreational 
to um, sedentary to kind of elite athletes and the different bacteria that they have. And it does, there are some commonalities, but there's also some, 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 some things that are different amongst those populations that are common to each. So um, yeah, interesting area. And I think one that, uh, again, I don't think necessarily it's, it's going to cause performance gains, but I think it does maybe uncover if you have an athlete that's maybe struggling or not, or not achieving the things that you want, or, you know, again, getting sick frequently, then that can be, sometimes people need to see that little bit of data to kind of show, Hey, you know, the diet's not up to scratch here. We gotta, we gotta do something. Yeah. That was, I, I'm glad you mentioned that at the end too, because that was a question that I had was, could the gut biome or digestion or better digestion have any potential to improve strength or power if you're not, if you're not like, if you're not digesting something well, but it's, it's more of a health um, or almost completely a health, a health thing versus a performance line thing. Well, I tell you what, I mean, this is maybe a few years down the road, but you know, Nick uh, was talking about how, you know, certain strains of bacteria will release more calories. Right. And so unfortunately at the moment, these are typically people who are overweight, pre-diabetic, right. They eat food and they actually get penalized kind of more energy releases than perhaps should do. And individuals who are more lean, this isn't the case. So the, the notion is that if you can get an endurance athlete, and, and inoculate bacteria that sort of release more caloric intake, you know, more calories out of the food stuffs that they're eating, then there is a potential performance benefit. Nothing's been seen in the research. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, they're doing studies on that at the moment, but uh, that's kind of interesting around because that's always the kind of the, the black box, if you will, you know, they do all these studies to calculate caloric intake. Uh, you know, they use doubly labeled water, everything should match up. And there's always this, this, you know, hundred or 200 or 300 calories that's unaccounted for. Hmm. And, and most of the time it's just assumed that it's, you know, we didn't track correctly or whatnot, but there, there could be this, you know, it's not a, it's not a pure conversion that's happening in the gut. So this could be to do with actually the gut bacteria, which potentially, you know, maybe 10 years from now might, uh, might be able to do something with that information. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting as it comes out. I was, I was with the health end. I mean, I feel like body composition in general is probably, it's both a health and a performance thing. Could, I mean, is yeah. there a like like body fat distribution or uh, in terms of how well you're digesting thing? Does does digestion or gut biome have anything to do with uh, body composition as a marker or or no? I mean, I think there you get more just into kind of generally if uh, you know people are experiencing more gas and bloating and discomfort, right? There's going to be more dysbiotic bacteria, so more quote unquote, bad bacteria, right? These, these bacteria that should only be in certain amounts have, have sort of bloomed up and they, they ferment uh, things quite readily and quite effectively. And so this is where you're going to have an athlete that maybe all of a sudden has bloating all the time, right? And in their diet, if you look at their diet at, at a quick glance, it's like, oh, all that stuff's quote unquote healthy, but some foods are more fermentable than others, right? Lactose obviously being really you know, one of the top ones and fructose being you know, and then of course you can get into the full FODMAPs kind of diet of all the different fermentable carbohydrates. But for most, whether you're a bodybuilder, whether you're an endurance athlete, whether you're a team sport athlete, if you're a coach or practitioner and you've got a, uh, you know, an athlete that's struggling with bloating, persistent bloating, discomfort, if you just start with those two, so, you know, lactose containing foods and then, you know, fructose, you're going to go a long way to helping to resolve that. And you can start to maybe figure out, well, you know, maybe that, that milk or that weight concentrate protein is not the right one for them or, you know, fruit's great for you, but Hey, this athlete's just consuming so much in the day all the time, or maybe dried fruit all the time. And they do experience a lot of bloating. Maybe we can swap that out for, you know, you know, more rice or a different type of carbohydrates. So, because as you know, I mean, for some athletes, it can get pretty bad, right? It can just really yeah. start to impair how they feel and, and, and performance. And it becomes kind of an anxiety thing around, 
what they're going to eat before they play mm-hmm. because of how they feel. So it's amazing how it can really digestive issues tend to kind of trickle down into all areas of, of health and then, you know, moods and other ones. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely an area to kind of look at. Yeah. Having a, having just a young child, like my, my son's one and seeing just how his diet impacts his mood. And we even, we had given, <laughs> yeah, given him probiotics. Version, right? yeah. 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 We remember he was just being really fussy while we gave him probiotics and within, you know, almost instantly his, he was much better. Like I just thinking about that kind of brain gut, you know, or gut mind like connection as well and, and everything that goes oh for that. sure i mean you get the, the helping hand of the bacteria to actually break down the thing they're eating and then you know as you mentioned then afterwards you have this bacteria that sets in and all these connections that take place so it's uh it's it's pretty amazing yeah yeah so in summary with the gut biome really like that that guy who went to what was the place he went to in africa called hamza so, so hadza. In, in tanzania so the hadza tribe hadza. is like the yeah one of the kind of longest living and healthiest tribes in the in the world yeah, I was thinking, well, well, a side topic, I was thinking back when you said like the, the Mediterraneans and these people who make their own food, I feel like that's definitely got to be like those, the longevity and the, the Sicilians and or like those people in that, I'm sure the, the unprocessed food is a massive, massive part of all that. Yeah, I mean, you look at those blue zones, I mean, you just mentioned it, I mean, you've got the Sardinia in Italy and Icaria in Greece and Okinawa, Japan, even Costa Rica, Nicoya, all the Seoul. <laughs> You know, they're just all eating real stuff and it's, it's different. You know, they're not eating the same things, but, uh, and then actually in Italy, they eat, in Sardinia, they eat a lot of lamb, which is a, you know, a red meat with a lot of saturated fat. So if you talk to a lot of folks in dietetics or nutrition, those are typically things that aren't top of their list for health, but you're like, well, you know, they're all living to a hundred. So, so <laughs> these, you know, there's, there's more to it than just kind of that linear or reductionist approach. Right. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That stuff's really interesting to me. And it, it does, yeah, it's something you don't necessarily think about when you're 18, 19, 20, but it does, it does oh, matter. No, you're indestructible then, right? <laughs> yeah. Everybody is, of course. <laughs> don't have to worry about that. Yeah. So for gut, but for, so nuts and bolts are just like what I was getting is, is having more fiber, unprocessed food, a diverse amount of food, but you're not going to be, you probably would have to move to those places to really be like the ultimate, <laughs> like being in a particular. Well, I think the one interesting thing for like, if you're a coach or practitioner, the, the kind of counterintuitive thing is if someone's struggling with bloating and gas and maybe IBS, you typically do well by reducing the fiber, hmm. right? So reducing all these things that we tend to say increase, you know, they're fine to increase when you're doing well, but if you're actually struggling with bloating and you add more fiber to somebody with like IBS, it typically gets worse. And so I think that's one where people can, uh, experiment a little bit and try to just reduce the number of food items to simplify things. And it's okay if the fiber actually comes down for a short period of time, because they'll tend to get some benefit. And then once they start feeling better and think, you know, then you can start to slowly um, um, stack things up because it is tricky. Because obviously, as you mentioned, when we see association studies, the higher the fiber, the better the the gut bacteria and diversity, right? Yeah, no doubt. I, I, I think it's really yeah, it's really a fantastic. I think there's a lot of really cool information coming out on that, and I'm excited to see uh, where it all goes. You know, as well as some of the new things coming out, as you mentioned. Um, I do think I actually want it. You mentioned it a little bit, with like mental, uh, like community, yes, but I think like mental and, and uh, that aspect of training, and that was at the bottom of that pyramid too, that penfolds. And are you doing anything? Like I know we have these call map. I think LeBron you see is like the billboard of him in the call map and uh, yeah. headspace and things like that. Uh, Quickly, what's your what's your take on some of like the apps versus some other things that I mean, I think the app is always the easy one, but it's also the phone. Uh, what's your what's your thought on some of that type of work for athletes? I know a lot more teams are doing like meditation and things now. 
Yeah, I mean, I think the apps are definitely a nice gateway because, again, yeah, I mean, most kids have their phone in, in their hand. 90% of the time are going to be going to their phone and using apps for things. So I think that's a nice way to be able to dovetail into some of these mindfulness apps where you're actually going to start to focus on attention because, you know, I'm sure as you know, attention is obviously a, a commodity that's on the decline now, right? The ability mm-hmm. to maintain attention, uh, which is huge in sport, right? Um, I think from, a, you know, in talking with our sports, like Peter, Dr. Peter Jensen, you know, this always blows me away. This idea that, you know, we all, all of us, no matter how rational or evidence-based or scientific, 90% of all the decisions that we make are based off of emotions and imagery. Like that's just insane. Right. I mean, that's, and so, you know, the ability to kind of connect with, with individuals and athletes is so big and uh, you know, from our end, that's what we're trying to, to be able to do, but also from athlete to athlete. And so, you know, Doc Jensen does a good job of trying to layer in some of those, those things. But I think, I think apps are a good place to, to start for a lot of athletes. For me, I think it's great if they can then progress off of the app into just their own practice of, because I think more and more it's going to become valuable of just getting away from your phone and just being able to kind of sit, you know, just sit there with nothing because you know, hey, five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, whether you want to breathe, whether you want to hum or mantra, <laughs> whatever you're doing, but just to have some quiet time, or even if you're, even if you're reading, I mean, it's, it's amazing how that's going to become, uh, you know, seems like an increasingly valuable commodity. Yeah, for sure. And the, yeah, the attention thing, especially, and I've, I've seen like, especially the way a phone will work, work with dopamine or uh, no, I think it's, it's madness. I mean, you know, to think that 70 PhD psychologists are behind your phone, developing it so that you're always going to be using it and everything <laughs> else is, is, is like, you know, it's 1984 or something, right? Yeah. Do you think, does, is there anything to the idea that if you were on your phone, like on your phone all day and it lowers your dopamine sensitivity, that that could be, that could be a real negative thing in a gameplay situation that requires like a heightened dopamine response? Is there any research or anything like that? Or do you have any thoughts on that element? Well, I mean, I think the burnout rates that you see across just population wide in terms of the workforce, you know, this idea of just everyone being on their phone, you know, from the time people get up in the morning, you know, there's a great article recently in the Atlantic, like instead of turning over to your partner, you turn over to your phone <laughs> throughout the whole day, we're on our phone. And the last thing you do before you go to bed is is being on your phone. And so, you know, as you mentioned, you know, dopamine, this, the nervous system stimulation now that just happens, There's there's never a moment where you're sort of just tuned out and you know, sitting on the bus or the car and, and, you know, relaxing or chilling out. There's always something, a podcast or, and again, it's amazing. I mean, we're doing, you know, this uh, interview and, you know, we'd be able to get all this information, but, you know, I think we've got to find that, that balance because it can definitely, you know, wear people out. And I think I'm sure you felt it, you know, if you have a day on your laptop where you're really working through the day on the laptop or you're on the phone all the time, I mean, just by the end of the day, it's uh you know, not only are you tired, but you're tired, but wired, right? You get finished mm-hmm. and all of a sudden now you can't sleep and you're like, wait a minute, I'm tired. Um, so yeah, it'd be interesting to see how we sort of, uh, I mean, I've, I've read some articles where people, you know, younger generations have less of a problem with that because they've sort of born into technology mm-hmm. than, than people of the kind of 35 plus, but, uh, I, I guess we'll see. It seems like, you know, obviously technology is great, but we got to keep, keep it for what it's great at and, and still these human connections and, and everything else it's almost it sounds funny to say but we got to still find time for these things because they're so valuable especially you know, if you've got young kids at home then you really realize how much this stuff's starting to to kind of get in the way of, of of connectivity 
Yeah, one of the books that's sitting on my bookshelf that I need to read is the Silence is the Key book um, by... Uh, he wrote Ego is the Enemy. I, I don't know. I can't... For some reason, I can't remember his name. I don't know why. And and The Obstacle is the Path. I can name those books, but I can't. Anyways, it's one of those things where we're talking about how silence is... Like, just spending time in silence is one of the key uh, elements of what should be your day. But how often does that actually happen? And that includes obviously not being silent, looking at your phone, just uh, silent, silent yeah. in the, you know, the, in that field too. And it's just, yeah, people don't get much of that. I just think that's really important. It's crazy. Actually short story here. I was years ago after university, I went traveling backpacking and I've in, uh, in Panama, there's this group of islands and I got out there. And so for seven days, I stayed on this island by myself. I mean, somebody would come in every day to give me food, but there was, there was basically nothing for seven days. And it was, you know, at first it was really relaxing and then it was almost sort of maddening, but just, I can't, I can't almost even imagine that now, you know, that, that level of dis- disconnectivity would just be so difficult, but uh, yeah, maybe we need to kind of find a way to, you know, retreats where I guess there is more of those now with people doing these silent retreats, but Hey, I think there's, there's something to it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's all good stuff. And hopefully that as the technology and att- demand for attention, the attention war increases, hopefully some of these other alternatives can at least find their way in the system to keep people in that space. So, um, 100%. Hey, yeah, I, I learned a ton and, uh, really appreciate having you on Mark. Uh, before you go, could you just key everyone in on your book? We mentioned it a couple of times peak, uh, tell us about that, where, what it's about, how to get it. Um, yeah. Yeah, listen, man, appreciate you having me on. Uh, yeah, the, the new book's called Peak, The New Science of Athletic Performance That's Revolutionizing Sports. And it's, you know, it's a it's a deep dive into people who work in the in the high performance space and sort of the common themes that run across, you know, the different areas that we cover, which is, you know, athlete health, fueling for various sports, recovery, and then mindset. And so, you know, it's been nice to see some of the reactions. You know, we got a number one on Audible and number one on Amazon in the US, the UK, and Canada. So been some good feedback from uh, from coaches and from from readers so if if people want to jump in enjoy the conversation want to dig a little bit deeper then uh yeah they can pick that up at any of the any of the bookstores awesome sounds good yeah it was a great book i I really enjoyed reading it myself so thank you mark i appreciate your time today awesome thanks a lot bud That wraps up another show. Thanks for being here with us. I really appreciate you guys listening and being a part of this podcast. If you enjoyed what you're listening to, don't hesitate to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening on. I would really appreciate it, and it really helps us out. Also, just another reminder to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, suppliers of high-end training technology, free lap timing system, gym wear, uh, flex unit, contact grids, force plates, they have it all in the best of with high-tech sports training and measuring equipment, as well as an awesome blog. Be sure to check them out. All right, we'll see you guys next week with another uh, special, very special episode that I've been taking some time to put together, and I think you guys are really going to like it. So we'll see you next week with that. Have a good one.